What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who died did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, he was raised. He's at the right hand of God who also intercedes for us. Who shall separate us from the love of God in Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? And all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Our Father, what amazing love we just sang about. A love that keeps us forever. Thank you for the incredible mercy of your Son, such that we can be justified, declared saints of God, secured for heaven, and in a relationship with yourself. Thank you that you saved us to work all things together for good, to make us more like Jesus. And so we pray in this hour as we read his words that We would have eyes to see and ears to hear and wills to respond that we might not just be those who hear the word and don't obey it, but that we might apply the things that you've given us, that indeed we might be changed. Help me, Father, in this hour. Thank you that in weakness there is great power. May you honor the meeting tonight as well and bring people who need to come. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you take uh, the, the Bible that you have in your hand this morning and turn to the Gospel of Matthew? If you're new to the Bible, it should be easy to find. It's the very first book in the New Testament. If you're joining us for the first time, we are in a series that I've entitled God's Prophetic Schedule. And these are exciting days in which we are living. A lot of people are talking about a global reset. They're speaking about a new world order. And we've been studying that subject for the last, really, five messages. We've zoomed in on this global reset from the Olivet Discourse in Matthew chapter 24. And indeed, there is a new world order that's coming, but neither Satan nor man nor the Antichrist will bring it about. The one who will ultimately bring the greatest of all resets will be Christ himself. John will write in the Revelation that the kingdom of the world will indeed become, he says, the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Now, man has always tried to somehow pull off some global empire, but he will not. He has tried, but he will ultimately fail. And when you speak today about Christ coming back, about a new world order, people laugh, they mock, they scoff, they ridicule. And that doesn't totally surprise us because behind that scoffing and that ridicule is the evil one himself. And Jesus said that Satan does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. Whenever he tells a lie, he speaks from his own nature because he's a liar and he is the father of liars. In his very core, he is a scoffer. And so we shouldn't be dismayed by what is happening in our day. In fact, it should encourage us because scoffing and mockery will increase at the end of the age. But sadly, many pastors, because they don't want to be viewed as some kind of prophecy crackpot, 
some zealot with all the charlatans who have made dates and abuse God's prophetic schedule. They don't preach on it at all, but it's essential because we are called as pastors to preach the whole counsel of Scripture, and one-third of the Scripture is prophetic in nature. Ever since I've been your pastor over 30 years, one of the earliest sermons I ever preached was on the rapture of the church in 1990. And when you preach through entire books of the Bible, because so much of it is prophetically related, you can't help but teach what the Scripture says about prophecy. In fact, I would say it's critical for a church to be healthy. By way of introduction, let me give you five reasons why it's critical that a pastor teach on prophecy if the church he shepherds is to be healthy. Reason number one, a church cannot be healthy if it does not preach end-time prophecy because if the pastor does not preach that, he will not purify the people of God in the way that they need to be purified. You say, how do you know that? John tells us in 1 John chapter 3, when you speak about the end of time and Christ's return, what does it do? It moves you to holy living. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him because we will see Him just as He is. That's the promise. And everyone who has this hope, the hope is His return. Everyone who has this hope set on Him purifies Himself as He is pure. The second critical reason to preach end-time prophecy if a church is going to be healthy is that it produces a godly fear. Do you remember what we studied months ago in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 and 11? Let me read it to you. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? What sort, what manner you could render it? It's a word that speaks of something that is foreign. In other words, Peter is saying that if we really understand what God has planned for his people and for this world, it allows us to live as foreigners. We are aliens and strangers, to use his words. While we are citizens and we are to be responsible, we recognize ultimately our citizenship is not here, but it is in heaven. A third reason why it's essential to preach biblical prophecy is it becomes an impetus, a motivation to evangelize the world. Jesus made this statement in John chapter 9 and verse 4. We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is called day. Night is coming when no one can work. Jesus came to seek and to save that which is lost. And he's commissioned to every born-again, blood-bought child of God to do the same, but there's coming a time when that opportunity will expire and we'll have no further chance. And yet, today, because I think prophecy is largely ignored in the church, habitually I get questions that search the scriptures where we broadcast and people listen through the internet. And how do I find a church that will open the scripture, especially a church that will teach Bible prophecy? And so God's people are fogged over, they're half paralyzed when it comes to the commission that Jesus has given us. And so when you teach the whole Scripture, including biblical prophecy, it becomes an impetus to evangelize the lost. Let me give you another reason why it is essential for us to 
preach Bible prophecy, and it is simply that you will be rewarded for loving Christ's return. The judgment of the just, I preached a whole message on that. There is a judgment that Christians face, not for sin, but for service. It's called the Bema Seat of Christ. And among other aspects of what God evaluates your life on, it's whether or not you long and love the return of Christ. Listen to these words. Paul is writing his very last epistle. It's the last virtual words he will ever record. And he says, in the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but to all who have loved his appearing. I hope you love his appearing, and when you study prophecy, it really deepens that love. Now, here's a chart to help you to see where we are at. Currently, we are in that section of time that theologians typically refer to the church age, because Christ said, I will build my church. The church did not exist in the Old Testament. It came into being chronologically on the day of Pentecost. But there's coming a time when God will remove the church. It's called the rapture. And the 70th week of Daniel's prophecy will begin to unfold. That seven-year period of time known as the Great Tribulation. At the end of that seven years, the second coming of Christ to the earth will take place. First, he catches us up and we meet the Lord in the air in the twinkling of an eye. But at the second coming, every eye will see him. And he will literally, physically, bodily come to the earth. He will establish his kingdom for a thousand years, and at the end of that thousand years, we will enter into the eternal state. So we still have some ground to cover in this series. Now, certainly, God could have raptured the church in the year 300 or 500 or 1,000, but then he would have had a lot of things to have pulled off. He could have certainly done whatever he chose, but he would have had to have brought the Jewish people back into the land, reestablished them as a nation, and allow them to control the city of Jerusalem. Because the final prophetic schedule takes place on a piece of geography called Israel, and largely in a city known as Jerusalem. But God waited nearly two millennia to do that. But it's precisely what God said he would do at the end of time. Listen to the words of Isaiah 11. He lives about 700 years before Jesus. And he will lift up a standard for the nations and assembled the banished ones of Israel, and will gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. So Isaiah writes of both the first coming of the Messiah and the second coming. And in the latter days, again, a term used by Moses, by Ezekiel, by Isaiah, by Jeremiah to refer to that final time frame in history when God will, among other things, gather the Jewish people. Listen to Isaiah 43. God said, do not fear, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and will gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up. And to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. So God has been doing that in our lifetime. It's one of the signs, the super sign, that we are in the final time frame of human history. And so just as the same prophet said, Can the Jewish people become a nation in a single day? And the answer was yes. May 14th, 1948, you need to have Israel in the land as a nation to fulfill the final prophetic schedule. And they have to have Jerusalem, which of course they regained in 1967. And so our passage is dealing with this seven-year period. We've looked at the first half 
Then there's a critical event in the middle that we're going to begin reading with. And then it moves us into the second half of the seven years. Now, I hope you have found it, Matthew 24. I'm reading now beginning in verse 15. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Whoever is on the housetop must not go down to get the things out that are in his house. Whoever is in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. But pray that your flight will not be in the winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Now, if you're using your note-taking outline, you can print it out if you're live-streaming us. There are three truths about the coming tribulational wrath that I want us to get a hold of. First, the sign to flee God's wrath. We begin with a sign to flee God's wrath. Now, by way of context, the setting is critical to understanding what follows. The setting is the Olivet Discourse. We call it that because it's given on the Mount of Olives. And of course, uh, what precipitated this are the events that took place just prior to this. If you remember, on Sunday, Jesus, we call it Palm Sunday, on the 173,880th day, just as the prophet Daniel predicted, he comes into Jerusalem and he presents himself as Israel's promised Messiah. But what do they do? They end up rejecting him Initially, emotionally, some of at least the Galilean Jews say, hail him. By the end of the week, they're saying, nail him. They want him exterminated. And so in chapters 22 and 23, Jesus rebukes and exposes the leadership that the people largely followed for their hypocrisy and for their unbelief. In fact, he compares the present generation of Jewish people while he's on earth to those who habitually killed the prophets. And so Jesus will say in Matthew 23 and in verse 36, if you look down at verse 36, truly, truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. And contextually, of course, these things refer to the judgment that will come on the generation of Jews for their rejection and for their persecution of God's men, for God's Messiah, the destruction of the temple, and then their scattering to the four corners of the world. And so this entire generation would suffer because the leaders who acted on behalf of the people and the people who followed and embraced their teaching rejected Jesus officially. If they had only responded to his claim, life would have been different. But everything changes. Now, in spite of their rejection, God doesn't abandon Israel. He still loves them. Jesus, with tears flowing down his cheeks, says this in verse 37, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Jesus wanted to gather them, but they were unwilling. Not unable, but unwilling. They made some volitional choices. Now, of course, what happened was their scattering in 70 AD, and it continued till 
a final uprising around 132 AD. And Luke, of course, details what would happen in Luke chapter 21. Jesus reaffirms what Moses had said in the book of Deuteronomy. Let me read you Jesus' words in in Luke 21, 24. And they, the Jewish people, will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all the nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So Matthew, in verse 38, gives us some of the details of this invasion. He says in verse 38, again, this precipitates the Olivet Discourse. And if you miss this, you're going to miss the meaning of the message he gives. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. What was the house? Every Jew knew what the house was. The house was the house of God, the temple. The temple is going to be left to you desolate. And you're going to be spread to all nations. But has God abandoned Israel? No. Look at verse 39. For I say to you, from now on, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is a quotation from one of the great Messianic Psalms. Psalm 118. Barak, Haba, Beshem, Yahweh, or the Jews would say Adonai, because they don't want to mispronounce Yahweh. Until you say that Barak Abem Bashem Adonai, I'm not going to come. What does that until imply? They're going to say it. Jesus cannot come back in the second coming until the Jews turn to him in faith. He can come anytime in the rapture. But for the second coming, the Jews have to turn to him in faith, and he will indeed bless them. He came in the name of Yahweh, and until they recognize that he came in the name of Yahweh, the name of the Lord, he will not come back. And so the house of the Lord will be left desolate. It will be utterly destroyed. Now look at verse 1 of chapter 24 where we are at. Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when his disciples came out to point the temple buildings to him. Now, you might want to put Mark 13.1 out in the margin. Mark adds a detail that Matthew does not give us. Let me read it. He was going out of the temple. One of his disciples said to him, Teacher, look, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. Now, Herod began the construction of this temple in 20 B.C. Herod dies the year Jesus is born, 4 B.C., His architectural plans continue, according to John 2.20, for another 46 years. It's completed in 64 AD, the temple. It's magnificent. It's one of the seven great wonders of the world in the first century. And then it's destroyed in 70 AD. Now, we don't call it the third temple, though technically it is. It's not called the third temple, though it is a brand new temple, but Herod made an agreement with the Jewish leaders that none of the sacrifices would stop. And so he dismantled piece by piece of the original temple and rebuilt the whole thing from the ground up, including the very temple mount on which it sat. Now, these Jewish men knew that Jesus looked at the, at the temple scores and scores of time during his whole life. And yet they point out to him, teacher, look, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. Why do they want to underscore that? Because he just said not one stone would be left upon another. He is going to obliterate 
the entire temple. And of course, they knew in the past that when the temple was destroyed, the first temple, then the second temple, that it meant disaster for the children of Israel. And so in their minds, you know they have to be processing. If the temple is going to be destroyed, as you say, Jesus, what does that mean for us? By the way, this was the place in which they met the living God. You couldn't approach God flippantly. You had to approach him on the basis of blood. And this is how they worshiped the living God, through the temple sacrificial system. If that's not there, how are we going to meet you? And of course, later in the week on Thursday night in the upper room, he is going to introduce to them the new covenant that was spoken of by Ezekiel and Jeremiah and other prophets. And he's going to remind them that it will be his own precious blood that will become the basis by which men approach God. Look at verse 2. And he said to them, do you not see these things? Truly, I say to you, not one stone will be left upon another, which will be torn down. I told you a few weeks ago, a parallel might be in 1990, looking at the Twin Towers, which at the time were considered the strongest and tallest buildings in the world. And to say in 1990, not one floor will stand upon another. You'd say, how is that possible? Someone would have to do something to the Twin Towers to make that happen. And they recognize that this structure was so incredibly strong that someone would have to do something, and not just some superpower, because this is the house of God. This is God's house. How is someone going to destroy the house of God? So much so that Jesus can say, not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down. And of course, 38 years later, the Romans came in, surrounded Jerusalem, and there was a flaming arrow, Josephus records, that hit the temple and some of the great cedar wood that came from the cedars of Lebanon. And the temple caught fire. All the curtains and all the gold and silver and bronze were heated up and melted and literally began to seep through the stones. Not to mention that the Roman soldiers, it's recorded, believed that there was a great treasure house of wealth. And so with their mighty crowbars, they literally pry apart every single stone to get the spoils of war, and not one stone is left upon another. Some of you have been with me to Israel, and you've seen this pile of stones here pictured. Uh, the smallest stone in the temple was two tons. Many of them were five tons. When you came to the retaining wall, which is what you see today, and you don't even see all of the retaining wall because most of it is underground because street level in Jesus' day was in a very different place in many parts of Jerusalem. In fact, there's one stone. It's 560 tons. It's the single largest piece of stone that man knows of that has been placed in any kind of architecture. So how is this going to happen? This is an incredible claim that Jesus is making. And so, of course, it's destroyed. The people are scattered. Years, decades, centuries go by, and people say, God's done with the Jew. It's over. It's history. So along comes a man by the name of Eusebius. His dates are 275 to 339. And he taught that the promises of Scripture were now meant for the Gentiles and the curses were meant for the Jews. 
Here's a picture of John Kostrostom. You cannot graduate virtually from any seminary in America without reading the works of Kostrostom. He, he lives 349 to 407. And he stated this in one of his sermons against Jewish people. He said, quote, The synagogue is not only a brothel and a theater, it is also a den of robbers and a lodging place for wild beasts. Jews are inevitable murderers possessed by the devil. Along comes St. Augustine, as we refer to him, 354 to 430. So he is uh, preaching in the uh, 4th and 5th century, and he lays the groundwork for Roman Catholicism. He gave the seeds for full-blown what we call replacement theology or supersessionism, that the church has superseded the people of Israel. When you go into Yad Vashem, we call it in America, in Washington, the Holocaust Museum, one of the first sights that you see is a picture of Augustine with these words he said of the Jews, "'How hateful to me are the enemies of your Scripture.'" How I wish that you would slay them, speaking of the Jews, with your two-edged sword, so that there should be none to oppose your word. And of course, he taught what was called the theory of substitution, namely that the church was now to be substituted for Israel. And again, Augustine said, because of their rejection of Jesus, they should, quote, bear the guilt for his death for the death of the Savior, for through their fathers they have killed Christ. So when you witness the Jewish people, like I did yesterday to a man in our neighborhood, and you grow up knowing that Gentiles and Christians say that you're guilty of deicide, that you Jews are guilty of killing God Almighty, you know why they bristle up sometimes and turn back. And of course, again, Augustine planted the seeds for Roman Catholicism. The Roman Catholic Church didn't begin with Peter. I hope you know that. So it's in the late 6th century that the Pope of Rome takes precedence and they become the Roman Catholic Church. As the centuries unfolded, listen to what Pope Gregory IX, here he's pictured in 1227, he said, quote, they, the Jews, ought to know the yoke of perpetual enslavement because of their guilt. See to it that the perfidious Jews never in the future become insolent, but that they always suffer publicly the shame of their sin and servile fear. Pope Pius V in 1568 wrote these words, the Jewish people fell from the heights because of their faithlessness and condemned their Redeemer to a shameful death. Their godlessness has assumed such forms that for the salvation of our own people, it becomes necessary to prevent their disease. He viewed them as a diseased people and sadly did not understand the substitutionary atonement of Christ not to mention that not only were the Jews involved in the crucifixion of Christ, so were the Gentiles, and so were you and I, for he was pursued for our iniquities. Here's a picture of Martin Luther. Martin Luther, of course, comes out of Roman Catholicism. He's an Augustinian monk, and so he carries with him a lot of Roman Catholic theology with a slightly different spin. Uh, his quote is very long, but let me just read a few lines from 
key paragraphs. In 1537, he writes of the Jews that, quote, their synagogues and schools should be burned, their houses should be destroyed, their Talmudic writings should be confiscated, their rabbis should be forbidden to teach, their money should be taken from them, they should be compelled to force labor. In 1924, Hitler, speaking to thousands of people, received a standing ovation for the following proclamation, and I quote, he said, I believe that today I am acting in accordance with the will of Almighty God as I announce the most important work that Christians could undertake, and that is to be against the Jews and get rid of them once and for all. And then he proceeded to go on to describe how Martin Luther had principally influenced his life. He said, and I quote, Martin Luther has been the greatest encouragement of my life. Luther was a great man. He was a giant. With one blow, he heralded the coming of the new dawn and the new age. He saw clearly that the Jews need to be destroyed, and we're only beginning to see what we need to carry this work on. Julius Stryker, of course, during the Nuremberg trials after World War II, defended himself with these words. He said, quote, I have never said anything that Martin Luther did not say. John Calvin, John Calvin, kind of the Reformed Pope, again, he comes out of Roman Catholicism, and he wrote in 1560 in an article he did called A Response to Questions and Objections of a Certain Jew. Quote, there, the Jews, their rotten and unbending stiff nakedness deserves that they be oppressed unendingly without measure or end, and that they die in their misery without the pity of anyone. Here's a picture of Pope Pius XII. He was besieged during the Second World War from the Jewish people for help, but he remained neutral, though to his credit, he did house a few, a handful of Jews in the Vatican. But when they pled with him for help, he ignored them. He wrote a letter on June the 22nd, 1943 to FDR, opposing that the Jewish people be given a homeland. In fact, when he was the cardinal, Cardinal Pacelli, before he became the pope, he actually gave money to Adolf Hitler to help start the Nazi party. Replacement theology continued. Here's Pope Paul VI. That's the first pope I remember seeing on the wall in our kitchen. In every new pope, a new picture would come up, and I can still have in my mind that picture of that man. And of course, at the Second Vatican Council, Pope Paul VI created a document entitled The Reformists, where he describes, quote, the church as the new people of God, that they had replaced Israel. Uh, as recently as 2010, there was a synod that is pictured here that met in the Middle East. It was a special synod of bishops. And they wrote this in the document that each of them signed. We Christians cannot speak of the promised land as an exclusive right for a privileged Jewish people. The promise was fulfilled by Christ. In the kingdom of God, there is no longer a chosen people. Now, they will argue that there is a chosen church, namely the Roman Catholic Church, 
and that they, in essence, have usurped and replaced Israel. And so those who say there's no future for the Jewish people ignore the promises God made concerning the land that he gave to them. It is theirs by a deed that God gave. And those who ignore them as God's people to bring not just about the first coming, which they did, but the second coming, I don't care if they're Catholic or so-called evangelical, knowingly or unknowingly, they're planting the seeds for anti-Semitism. But I would say to any Reformed brother who thinks that we are the new Israel to read these words from Jeremiah 31. The prophet says, this is what the Lord says. He who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies is his name. If this fixed order departs from me, declares the Lord, then the descendants of Israel will cease to be a nation before me forever. This is what the Lord says. If the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out below, then I will also reject all the descendants of Israel for everything they have done, declares the Lord. And so because Calvin believed that the body of Christ, not the Roman church, again, a different spin, was the new Israel, he read Romans 9, 10, and 11 through that lens. But if you're new to the Bible and you just sit down and read those three chapters of Scripture, it's not a parenthesis in the book of Romans. Paul has concluded chapter 8 by saying, nothing, and I mean nothing, as we sang today, can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ. And to prove it, he illustrates in 9, 10, and 11 with Israel. And so in chapter 9, he speaks not of personal election, but of national election, how God elected a nation out of all the nations of the world to bring the Messiah. In chapter 10, he deals with their current rejection, their unbelief, but in chapter 11 of their future restoration when they will come to faith. And so chapter 11, he opens with these words, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? Meganoita. It's the strongest adversative in the New Testament. May it never be. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. And then he'll say in chapter two, verse 2 of that chapter, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. So some people, sometimes because of prejudicial presuppositions, that they either inherited from their forefathers or from the system of theology that they are trying to defend, believe that God is done with Israel. And they are doing that largely on experience. You know, we as evangelicals will speak to our Pentecostal, charismatic friends and say, look, any experience you have needs to be put under the authority of Scripture. You don't say, I believe because I had this experience. Scripture must be the final arbiter. We speak of sola scriptura or scripture alone. But because for centuries it appeared that God had done nothing on the basis of experience, they reread the prophecies as it related to the people of Israel. And they explain away the clear teachings of Scripture. And they're putting the body of Christ to sleep. Verse 3. 
As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things happen? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, if you go back a page to chapter 21 and verse 12, you will read, Jesus entered the temple. And he's in the temple all the way into chapter 24 and verse 1, where the scene changes. Verse 1 of this chapter says, Jesus came out of the temple. And he's no longer speaking to the crowds. He is speaking, the text says, to the disciples privately. And Mark elucidates for us that the disciples are foreign named Peter, James, John, and Andrew. So this is Tuesday before Friday, which is Passover, in which he will be crucified. And he's sitting on the Mount of Olives, and Mark tells us, opposite the temple. And so when you go on the Mount of Olives and you're standing on it, unless your back is to the temple, his back is not to it. He's looking directly at the temple buildings. This is what you will see today. Again, the Dome of the Rock and some other pagan buildings up there on top of the temple mount. Um, This is what they saw in Jesus' day. They saw a complex of buildings. By the way, we have just confirmed by God's grace, we are planning to go back to Israel in September of 2023. Registration will open in a week or so. But this is what they saw, the buildings. Tell us, they ask, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? Now, there's three questions, though grammatically, technically two questions, with the second question having two parts to it. Tell us, first question, when will these things happen? That is the prediction of the temple being destroyed. As already noted, its destruction would be a fantastic event. No natural force of nature could pull this off. This would have to be some man-made kind of plan. The temple was three times the size of the Dome of the Rock. Um, The rocks used in it were, for the most part, larger than all the stones used in the Great Pyramids. The Great Pyramid itself is 5,000 years old. It was approximately 1,000 years old when Abraham saw it. It was 1,500 years old when Moses put his eyes on it. And if Joseph and Mary, when they were in Egypt, saw it, it was 3,000 years old. It was an incredible piece of architecture. And yet the average stone used in the temple was twice the size of anything in the Great Pyramids. And so they knew when Jesus predicted the destruction of the temple that this was important because, again, when Solomon's temple was destroyed and when Zerubbabel's temple was destroyed in 70 AD, it, again, it would have great consequence. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He said, the Jewish people are going to say that. I'm not coming back until they say that. And so they want to know what will be the sign of your coming. When when is this going to happen? When are the Jewish people who have given you so much trouble, Jesus, when are they going to respond like this? They want to know, and it's a good question. Your coming, your parousia. The word is a technical word that was used of a great king or a governor that would make his entrance. Well, this is the parousia of all parousias. When Jesus comes back, to the earth. Notice the, um, another question, the third question, or the second part of the second question, and what will be the sign of your coming? That's question two, in the end of the age. 
The old King James says the end of the world. The new King James, like the NES reads, the end of the age, because the world doesn't really end. We move from age to age. This car on earth will someday end. But the Scripture speaks of us going from age to age. And when you read Matthew's response, he just briefly has noted the destruction of the temple, whereas Luke and Mark give great detail on it. But he focuses on Christ coming back to the earth. Why? Because that's the theme of his gospel. The theme and purpose of his gospel is that Jesus is the king. And so in this section, Jesus looks down the corridors of time, and he gives us the signs of the time that will unfold before he can rule and reign. Seven signs that we've already studied that he calls the birth pangs. And I noted for you earlier that they perfectly match what we read in Revelation chapter 6 with the sealed judgments. Here's a chart to dust off your memory again. He speaks of false Christ. That's the first horse, the white horse. He speaks of wars. That's the red horse, famines, the black horse, death, the pale horse, martyrs, cosmic changes, and the worldwide preaching of the gospel. The worldwide preaching of the gospel, by the way, didn't happen in the first century. And so for those who take all Matthew 24, with the exception of the second coming, as historical, the preaching of the gospel had just started. But it will be completed. Every tribe, tongue, and nation during the great tribulation period will hear and learn all about Jesus. Now, people today say, well, we're witnessing the birth pangs. We're not. That's a sloppy handling of the text. We are witnessing that there's a pregnancy, but the very events that Jesus outlines in verses 4 through 14 are birth pangs. In fact, he says they are just the beginning of birth pangs. And so it's not by accident that these two chapters, Revelation 6 and Matthew 24, fit hand in glove. Now, the Scripture says on the one hand, but you, brethren, are not in darkness, that the day should overtake you like a thief. And I suppose in one sense, when Jesus comes back, it will be a surprise for us all because no one knows the day or the hour. But for Christians whom Paul says are to know the times and the seasons, we will at least know the season for Christ's second coming. And if we know the season for his coming, we know that the rapture that precedes it must be that much closer. And so again, for these prophecies that we're going to look again at this morning to take place, the Jews have to be in the land. They were scattered from, from 70 AD to 132 across the world. They have to be back in the land. Jerusalem has to be under their control. But we are witnessing what they call aliyah. Aliyah is a Hebrew word that means coming up, moving up. It's used in two ways by Jewish people. When someone comes up to read the Torah, and they've been moved up in life because that's a great holy privilege, or when they move back to Israel, they too are moving up. And so every single week, more and more Jews across the planet are leaving the various countries of the world and taking up full-time residence in Israel. And so for verse 15 to happen, the abomination of desolation, the Jews have to be back in the land. They have to want to build a new temple. Now understand, uh, I have a book here. It's called, um, in, in Arabic, Al-Harim Al-Sharef, which means the noble temple. That's what Arabs call the Temple Mount. 
The Jews call it the Temple Mount. They call it the Noble Sanctuary. This was written in 1925 by the head Muslim in the world at that time. And in this little booklet, it was basically given to visitors when they came to the Temple Mount. It said that the original Solomonic Temple was right up there on top of the Temple Mount. They said that. They taught that. They have since changed their story and said, no, the Jews never had a temple up here. Though about a decade ago, wanting to expand one of their underground meeting places without permission from the Israeli government, they began to dig it out, truckload after truckload, and they said, what's going on here? And all the dirt that they were throwing away, the Jewish people, for archaeological purposes, retrieved. Some of you went with me one year to the Temple Mount uh, digging, and we saw all these various artifacts that volunteers, as they sift through the dirt, have found, and it proved that this was the location of the Solomonic Temple and the second temple that followed, written by Zerubbabel. So all I'm trying to say is that, look, this temple is going to be rebuilt in spite of what people say. And so there are Orthodox Jews who recognize that nearly 200 of the 16, 613 commandments in the Old Testament cannot be fulfilled unless the sacrificial system is in place. There are Jewish people who recognize that sin deserves death, and therefore without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness for sin. Yet, I would just say that in spite of um, their desire to build a temple, if they built it last year, it would have been no good to them. Why? Because it has to be cleansed. And it has to be cleansed in a very specific way. Here are two red heifers. Uh, Bring up the next slide. Uh, These are two of the five that has made it to Israel recently. A red heifer is a female cow. Here's a rabbi inspecting a red heifer. Don't be confused by the horns in this cow. Unlike deer, uh, red heifers and cattle can have horns and be female. And so a whole contingency of rabbis came to this Texas ranch Providentially, none of these five red heifers had been tagged in any respect. And they came and went over every inch of the body of these red heifers because you couldn't just present any kind of a red heifer. You had to present a specific kind of red heifer for God to accept it. You couldn't have a black hair growing out of the red heifer. Now, the Jewish people say that there have been nine qualified red heifers, and the history of all the temples. And so for nearly three decades, they have been looking for a red heifer without spot or blemish and without a single black hair in it. And so they found them. And here's a picture on October the 5th. They are arriving, these five cattle, these five female heifers, into Israel when they came. uh, There was over 300 priests and rabbis and Jews blowing the shofar, celebrating Many of the Jews heralded this as the beginning step for the temple to be rebuilt. Others said it was the foundation for the Messiah to return. Either way, and we may see it through a different set of eyes, for ritual purification, the temple has to be built. And so again, just to visualize where we are at, did I skip a slide on numbers? If I did, bring it up. Bring up the number slide. I think I skipped it. Um, 
It doesn't matter. On Numbers 19, go home and read that chapter. Here it is. It says, this is the statute of the law which the Lord has commanded, saying, speak to the sons of Israel that they bring you an unblemished red heifer in which is no defect on which a yoke has never been placed. They have been looking for three decades. But one Texas farmer, cattle rancher, he could have sold them for millions of dollars. As it turns out, he's a born-again Christian, and he gave them to the people of Israel. Now, there was a time when these Jewish men who wanted to offer sacrifices were viewed as extremists. But now the whole mindset of the Jewish municipalities has changed. They see it as part of their culture. And even now when these Jewish rabbis, and there's over 500 DNA tested Levites who are practicing the sacrificial system, not in the temple, obviously, the national media across Israel comes because they believe it's very, very important. And so here's again a chart that again helps us to see where we're at. The rapture takes place. There's a space of time of weeks, days, or months. I don't think years. Some think it could be years. But it appears in light of the events and as they unfold that it would be a brief time. But then there will step on the scene this Antichrist, this first beast whom we studied, who will sign a peace treaty with Israel. For the first three and a half years, he'll be kind to them. But in the middle of the three and a half years, he will put a stop to the sacrifice, Daniel says. Paul affirms the same truth. He'll make himself out to be God. And from that point on, Israel will be persecuted. And so the trigger event is given to us here in verse 15. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. We've seen there are two aspects unfolded in Scripture to this event called the abomination of desolation. The first aspect is the Antichrist goes in the temple and he says, I'm God. Paul says he is the one who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Now that in and of itself would not be wrong if he was God. Jesus went into the temple and he called this his father's house. He equated himself to God in the temple. But it was true of him. But it will not be true of this man. And so there's a second aspect to the abomination of desolation that we studied that will prove there's no possible way he can be both God and break the Decalogue. Because God specifically speaks of not making an idol. Now remember, we studied it, Revelation 13, 14. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which it was given him to perform and the presence of the beast. He's talking about the second beast, who's also called the false prophet. He's given power by the devil himself to perform miracles in the presence of the Antichrist, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who had the wound of the sword and has come back to life. And so when the Antichrist comes back to life, we're told they worship the dragon, that's Satan, because he gave his authority to the beast, and they worship the beast, saying, who is like the beast and who is able to wage war with him? And so it's this miracle that really shakes the foundations of the Christian faith 
This fake Christ comes who has had a literal fatal wound, but he comes back to life. It's a miracle. Now, it's not the miracle of resurrection. It's the miracle of being raised back to life like Lazarus and seven others who died again and went back into the grave in the body they came out in. And so we studied last time Revelation 13, 15, and it was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast, this false prophet, so that the image of the beast would even speak and cause as many as who do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. And so this happens at the midpoint. It's called the abomination of desolation. Now remember, during this first three and a half years, tens of thousands of Jews are converted. 144,000 Jews who are indestructible, they're protected by the seal of God, are missionaries across the world, and they are certainly preaching to the Jewish people. In addition, there are two witnesses on the Temple Mount, and there is one angel, but really three, who are somehow involved in warning the people that Jesus is Lord. And many will be converted, but not all. Some will still be following this false Messiah. But when he does what he does through his cohort, the false prophet, they will convince that his claim to be Messiah is null and void. Why? Because God said, you shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. He's an idolater and you cannot be an idolater and claim to be God at the same time. And so while the Jews will scatter across the planet in 70 AD, and that process will start, God will regather them. And they will think they have the man they've been looking for to lead their nation, to lead them in a way that they can worship, in a way that they think is pleasing to God. But when this event happens, with this idol, with this image that supernaturally is given life because Satan can do miracles. He does false wonders, false miracles, Paul says, lying wonders. And Daniel speaks about the wing of abominations. A wing describes an overspreading influence. And so what will happen is he'll have an influence by which the Jews will reject it, but the rest of the world will flock and they will worship him. So again, here's the trigger point, verse 15, the abomination of desolation. Now, that's the sign to flee God's wrath. When you see this sign take place, get out of Dodge. Secondly, there's the way to flee God's wrath. Let's consider the way to flee God's wrath. There's a warning here given in verse 16. When you see the abomination of desolation then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. And so, again, the event in verse 15 fixes the chronology of the midpoint of the tribulation according to Daniel 9.27. And so when that event happens, verses 16 to 20 need to be heeded. These warnings that Jesus gives. You are to flee to the Judean hills. Why? Because persecution will come upon the Jewish people like they've never seen. You see, when they flee, just by virtue of their fleeing, they're showing they've been converted. Why? Because these are new Christians. These are completed Jews. They've never read the New Testament before. They're pouring over the New Testament in this day. They're, they're young believers. They're listening to the words of Jesus. And the fact that they obey the words, they are giving the evidences, the fruit, that their conversion is real, that they have been changed. 
And so they are to flee to the Judean hills. And so when that happens, we'll study next time, false prophets are going to try to lure them out. Because while they cannot take their souls, they can take their lives. And that's what they'll want to do. So notice verse 17, the warning continues, whoever is on the housetop must not go down to get the things out that are in his house. Verse 18, whoever is in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. So again, when this abomination takes place, go to the mountains and go quickly. Jesus is underscoring the level of danger. Don't even go back into the house to get your things. Don't go back into the field to get your coat. Run, run for your lives. And again, God gives us this to study. While it doesn't apply to us in the sense that the church is not here, God gives it to us to study so that we know the future events that will take place. But understand, this has special application for the Jews. Did you see that little parenthesis in verse 15? There are no like parentheses in Greek, but there's a way to structure grammatically a parenthesis. There's a little one here. Let the reader understand. Or literally, whoever is reading, let him understand. Again, that statement alone, apart from the terminology, he's speaking of Judea, not Dallas. He's speaking of Sabbaths. He's speaking of housetops. He's talking to a Jewish nation. And they're going to be reading this, studying it. Oh, this is what Daniel said. This is what Yeshua said. Verse 19, but whoa. There's a note of sadness here in verse 19. Whoa. To those who are pregnant in those days, who are nursing babies in those days. Pregnant and nursing mothers during the tribulation will have a very difficult time. Why? Because you have physical limitations. You can't run quickly with a baby in hand. Neither can you... Uh, keep running consistently when you're caring for an infant and feeding and nursing them. Verse 20, but pray that your flight will not be in the winter or on a Sabbath. Why is that? Because the weather in the winter is rainy. We don't typically go to Jerusalem come late October through uh, the end of March. Why? Because it's the rainy season. And it can really rain. In fact, once May comes from May to September, there's virtually not a drop of rain. None. You're guaranteed. You don't have to bring an umbrella. <laughs> kind of nice to plan that way. But when the rainy season comes, the creeks are overflowing. Even the Kidron Valley has water flowing through it. And it's difficult to travel. And Jesus recognizes that. And if it happens on a Sabbath, well, those observant Jews who are not converted, they're certainly not going to help you. Again, this has never literally been fulfilled in the history of the church, but Jesus speaks of it in a very, very real way of these Jewish people. So there's a sign to flee God's wrath, the defilement in the temple. There's a way to flee God's wrath with a sense of great urgency. Third and finally, the motivation to flee God's wrath. Let's think for a moment about the motivation to flee God's wrath. Jesus now gives the reason they should flee so fast. Verse 21, for at that time there will be great tribulation, the kind that hasn't taken place from the beginning of the world until now and never will. You see that little word for, gar? 
It means because. In other words, he is giving an explanation for the illustrations and analogies that he just gave. He wants the believing Jews who are in Jerusalem and in Judea to flee, to run. Why? Because there will be great tribulation. Now, the first half of the tribulation period is still called the tribulation period. It's described that way in Revelation 6, where you see the seal judgments. But it's also described as the wrath of the Lamb in Revelation chapter 6. But there's a difference in the tribulation in the first half of the tribulation and the second half. Because what happens in the second half? Well, it's almost beyond belief. And so here's a slide that shows how the trumpet judgments will come. Remember, there are seven seal judgments. You can only open up one seal at a time. We studied this when we walked through Revelation. When you come to the seventh seal, you can see all seven trumpets. And in the seventh trumpet are contained seven bowls. And so when the seventh seal is opened, there's silence in heaven for 30 minutes. It's like their breath is taken away. And Jesus said, then there will be great tribulation like we have never, ever seen in the history of man. Fast forward. Let's take a look at that. Fast forward to Revelation chapter 8. Revelation chapter 8. The seventh seal is broken, which again opens up the seven trumpet judgments. As you read through these chapters, you're going to discover that there's an explicit cause and effect relationship between the opening of the seventh seal in the introduction to the seven trumpets. Again, it's like all of heaven is holding its breath. Look at chapter 8 in verse 7. The first sound, meaning the first trumpet. And there came hail and fire mixed with blood, and they were thrown to the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. So here's a judgment on the vegetation. And you need it to live Verse 8, the second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. A third of the sea became blood, and a third of the creatures which were in the sea and had life, and a third of the ships were destroyed. Here's a judgment on a third of the sea where it becomes even blood-like, and a third of the creatures in the sea are going to die. Again, because men is obstinately rejecting the revelation there beginning. The third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch. And it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is called Wormwood, and a third of the waters became Wormwood. And many men died from the waters because they were made bitter. So now all the freshwater rivers, all the freshwater sources, springs, they're polluted, they're undrinkable. Verse 12, the fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars were struck so that a third of them would be darkened, and the day would not shine for a third of it, and the night in the same way. So the celestial bodies, the planets, the stars, and so forth, they're functioning at a diminished rate. And I suppose God is sending a message. Men who love the darkness are going to live in it a little bit longer. Then we read in chapter 8, in verse 13, an angel cries out, Whoa, 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 
to those who dwell on the earth because of the remaining blast of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. He's basically saying, if you think this is bad, you haven't seen anything yet. And then the fifth trumpet is sounded. Turn over to Revelation 9. Look at verse 2. He opened the bottomless pit and smoke went up out of the pit, like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened by the smoke of the pit. Then out of the smoke came locusts upon the earth, and power was given to them, as the scorpions of the earth have power. They were told not to hurt the grass of the earth, nor any green thing, nor any tree, but only the men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. And they were not permitted to kill anyone, but to torment for five months. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings a man." And in those days, men will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, and death flees from them. These are the worst of all demons. They are in the abyss. Those demons on that day when Jesus met them in Gadarna said, Oh, please don't send us into the abyss. Send us into the pigs, because then they have no ability to function and wage war. They're the worst of all the demons. But God will let them out for a time, and men will want to commit suicide. Maybe they'll take a gun, and the demon will take it away. People will seek death, but they won't be able to find it. Revelation 9, verse 13, the sixth trumpet is sounded. Then the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, one saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. And the four angels who have been prepared for the hour and day and month and year were released so that they could kill a third of mankind. Then the seventh trumpet is sounded, Revelation eleven fifteen, and we're told the seventh angel sounded and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world, which right now is under Satan's control, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever, which tells you you're almost right at the end. And again, as you can see on this next chart, the church is taken out, peace treaty is signed, Israel's protected, abomination of desolation, midpoint, and then the trumpets and the bulls come. Very, very, very few people put the trumpets in the first half because of the way the Olivet Discourse is structured and how it perfectly lines up with Revelation chapter 6, not to mention the very nature of the trumpet and bull judgments mean that the earth cannot survive much longer as these judgments are unfolded. And so chapter 15, it introduces us to the seven golden bowls of wrath. Seven angels are going to pour out these bowls that are also called plagues. Verse 1, I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels who had seven plagues, which are the last because in them the wrath of God is to let, oh, it's finished. So God refers to these bowls as plagues, and once again, they're described as the wrath of God. And it's chilling. Uh, Dr. Pentecost used to always tell us that the tribulation is like someone turning up a rheostat. As we studied the seal judgments, we saw it affected a a fourth of the earth. We studied just a moment ago the trumpet judgments and repeatedly a third of the earth. Now when you come to the bowl judgment, it affects the entire earth. It's like boom, 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 boom. 
and then Jesus comes. So again, here's the relationship between the, the three, the seal, the trumpets, and the bowls. And here are the seven bowls of wrath as they are delineated. Look at verse 2. The first bowl of wrath resulted in, notice, a loathsome and, mal- a loathsome and malignant sore on the people who had the mark of the beast and who worshiped the image. Again, this sends a message Antichrist, if he's so great, why can't he heal his followers? His hands are tied. And by the way, it's not like God is up there enjoying this. This is an expression of the mercy of the Lord. Because what we are reading here is absolutely nothing in comparison to what we're going to study in the lake of fire. He's sounding his alarm clock. Get right, repent, call on Jesus. Verse three tells us the second bowl resulted in the sea becoming becoming blood like that of a dead man and every living thing in the sea died. Look, billions of people live off of the sea every day. It's their source of food. And now millions of people will have That source eradicated, man can't live much longer. Verse 4, the third bowl of the wrath of God was poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. Now every single source of fresh water, whether it's a well in your yard or a river behind your life, yard or a stream coming through your property, it's all polluted. It's no longer good. You'll run out of bottled water and stored water pretty quickly, Now, they say you can go several weeks potentially without food, but on average, most people can only go one week without water. Verse 8, the fourth bowl is poured out where the sun is so hot that it burns men with fire. But instead of repenting, we learn in verse 9, they blaspheme the name of God. In verse 10, we learn of the fifth bowl. We're told then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and his kingdom became darkened and they gnawed their tongues because of pain. They blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores and they did not repent of their deeds. You know, sometimes when someone is in intense pain, they, they take another part of their body and they create pain there to try to equalize it. People will literally be gnawing their tongues to try to find relief. Then we're told specifically in verse 12 of the sixth bowl of God's wrath, the sixth angel poured out his bowl in the great river, the Euphrates, and the water was dried up so that the way would be prepared for the kings of the east. Now we know with certainty that this refers to rulers from the Orient. We'll study it a little bit later. Chapter 20 unfolds for it. The Euphrates becomes a superhighway for the armies of the world to march to that plain of Armageddon. Napoleon called it the greatest battlefield in the world. I've stood there many times with people. Then the seventh bowl is poured out. Lightning and thunder in verse 20. And every island fled and the mountains were not found. And huge hailstones, about 100 pounds each came down from heaven upon men. He's speaking of unbelieving men. And men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, because its plague was extremely severe. God intends with this judgment not only to punish mankind, but ultimately to prepare the earth for Christ's second coming. So back in our text in Matthew, 
understand the context of what Jesus is saying when he states here in Matthew 24, 21, for at that time there will be great tribulation, the kind that hasn't taken place from the beginning of the world until now and never will again. Which is why he says in verse 22, unless those days were limited or cut short, no one would survive, but those days will be limited or cut short because of believers who will enter the kingdom. Now, how are we going to apply this passage of Scripture? I want to take my three major points that I gave you, that Jesus gave us about this wrath for Israel to flee. And for us, even though we will not be here for this time, if you know Jesus, for us to make some application. Number one, our sign to flee God's wrath is that we are sinful. They're asking for the signs of his return and what will proceed. Well, we have a sign and it's just like staring us in the face and it's that we are sinful. Remember, the purpose of the tribulation is to bring about repentance, not just for the Jews, but for the Gentile nations of the world. And it's not exclusively a New Testament doctrine. It's taught throughout the Old Testament. Moses, all the way back in Deuteronomy chapter 4, looking at the end of time, wrote, when you, the people of Israel, when you are in distress and all these things have come upon you, in the latter days, again, at the end of time, in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and listen to his voice. Jeremiah calls this the time of Jacob's trouble. And he makes this statement right before he unfolds the new covenant. Alas, for that day is great. There is none like it. And it is the time of Jacob's distress or tribulation or trouble, depending on your translation. But he, Israel, will be saved from it. Daniel the prophet, almost with identical words that Jesus makes. Now at that time, Michael, the archangel, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people will arise, and there will be a time of distress or tribulation, such as has never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who's found written in the book, will be rescued. This has never happened in human history. So people who just spiritualize this and say, this all happened by 70 AD, they are abusing and twisting the Word of God, in order to defend some theological system. Of those saved during the tribulation, John writes these words in John, Revelation 7, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count, from every nation and tribe and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Remember this gospel, the kingdom shall go to the whole world. That happens in the first half. And now he, in chapter 7, he's looking at the results of what's been going on during the sealed judgments. These are people who are clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hand. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Then one of the elders answered saying to me, these who are clothed in the white robes, who are they? And where have they come from? And listen to John's response. I said to him, the elder, my Lord, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones who came out of the great tribulation and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Now do not forget those people who are saved during this time are those who have never heard the gospel before in clarity and in power. People today who have heard the gospel prior to the rapture will have no chance for salvation. God will send upon them a deluding influence because they did not respond in faith. 
But here's the bottom line. Everyone, Jew, Gentile, living in the church age or during the tribulation, everyone needs a Savior because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and we need to flee to Jesus. Secondly, our only way to flee God's wrath is through Christ. Our only way to flee God's wrath is through Christ. He just spoke of those who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Old Testament folks were saved by their faith in the Messiah who would come. We look back at the Messiah who has come. God has only had one way of salvation. There is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus said it, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Look, if he's not the only way to the Father, then he's no way. Because if he says he's the only way and he's not, then he's either a deceiver or he's deceived. That would make him a sinner and he can save no one. He's not saying I'm the best way or I'm a good way. I'm the only way. Third and finally, our motivation to flee God's wrath is God's justice. God's just wrath is seen during the time of the great tribulation. And again, it's his final wake-up call for those who have never heard the gospel before. But please understand, God is holy. God is just. God cannot overlook sin. God will not overlook one half of one sin I've ever committed. And for God to overlook any sin, he would topple from his throne of holiness and his throne of justice. Your sin will be punished. My sin will be punished. It will either be punished in a substitute, the Lord Jesus, or be punished in your person forever and ever. But I promise you, it will not be overlooked. Call upon Jesus that you might be saved. Father, thank you for these words that we've studied, that our Savior gave us, that you've given us these words that we might be engaged in the greatest rescue mission that one can be entrusted with telling men and women and boys and girls how they can be forgiven and have a new life in Jesus Christ. Help us to do it in spite of the mocking and the scoffing and the opposition that it seems to be growing here and throughout the world. Help us to be good stewards of the gospel and help someone even today to recognize that Jesus bore all the wrath that they deserve, that he was raised from the dead proving he was sinless, And if they will simply say, Lord Jesus, save me, you promise in an instant of time they would be transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of your Son. Help someone to do that. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.